pray together. Father, you are a great, great father. There's no one in this world that is like you. You're holy and perfect and kind and good and gracious and merciful. And we have come this morning to worship you and to hear from you through your word by your spirit. Help us that we would yield ourselves to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Business gurus tell you that you should be bringing before people your purpose and mission statement every 28 days or so. That's what they say. And uh, we, we do them one better, and we do it every three to seven days. We want you to hear what our mission is. Our mission here is to glorify God as we are preaching the gospel and living the gospel. That is what this ministry mission is. Preaching the gospel and living the gospel for the glory of God. We have no illusions of grandeur. We are not the most hip church. We are not the most intellectual church. We are not the most slick church. We are not the most programmed church. When I think of Cornerstone Church, I think of these types of statements, like the Bible has in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul wrote, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Our goal is, as we've received the gospel, so we communicate the gospel. We want to be what these passages characterize as characteristic of our ministry. In Colossians 1, Paul wrote to the Colossians, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Or like Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There are constantly arising challenges to the presentation of the gospel. These challenges will continue until we arrive in glory because the gospel is at enmity with the kingdom of darkness. The gospel is contrary to the kingdom of darkness. This opposition will continue until we receive, till we enter into glory because the gospel is at enmity with the kingdom of darkness. The book of Galatians provides for the church a firm defense against the corruptions and attacks against the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Galatians does for us. It provides for us this great defense, a firm, solid, unending defense against attacks against the gospel. 
because the gospel is the only rescue the world has from sin, from its corruption, its guilt, its penalty, and its power, Satan wages his most vehement attacks against the gospel. And you know, friends, he does it from as many angles as he can attempt. He has tried various ways to attack God's gospel because it is the only thing that will rescue us from our perilous state that we're born into. The gospel is the only resource we have to save our souls from sin, from the guilt of our sin, from the power of that sin, and from ultimately the presence of that sin. As early as the 40s A.D., the gospel was under attack. But that's, that's kind of giving people the benefit of the doubt. Jesus, as he came into the world, right, you'll remember the attacks that he was against from the very start. And he came bringing not some other gospel. He presented himself as the gospel, as the rescuer. And people did not want to have that rescue that he offered. So there's been opposition from the very start. But we can see in the pages of the New Testament, in the early 40s, in the book of Galatians, as well as you can see at the, the council in Acts chapter 15, that there is a, an attempt from the earliest stages to distort the gospel. This is not simply an attack that comes from men. This is a, an otherworldly attack. It's a satanic attack. It's a demonic attack. And the, the vessels through whom it comes are just simply those who, who are ploys and pawns of that endeavor. Now, as we look through the book of Galatians, I want for us to take a look just spanning through the pages of Galatians and see the, the, the presentation that Paul has. And that presentation is, there's a, there are contrary, there are people that are contrary to the gospel that we preach. And so we want to see in every chapter this opposition. First of all, we're in Galatians chapter 1. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, I am astonished that you, now who is he talking to? A church, a church that you are so quickly deser deserting him. Now, I find that to be interesting, and we're going to cover this in, in greater depths next week. To desert the gospel is to desert God. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so he, he, doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches. He gets right to the point at the start of his letter. And that's this. There are people that want to twist the gospel. This is in the 40s AD. Guess what? We're in the, the 21st century. No different. Different tactics. Different ways. Same assault. It's against the only message that saves. Take a look at chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Paul writes this, I went up because of revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, I set, set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, fake brothers, secretly brought where? In 
into the church who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. What kind of slavery? To to something that is not the gospel. Verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. I love it. Don't you love that? Listen, it's so tempting when all the world around you is crushing down and saying, you narrow-minded folk. Don't you know there are broader ways that encompass far more people than you? When all that comes, we say, yeah, but, but God said. I understand. I understand your human logic. I, I don't fault you in your human logic, but I want you to see, see this. God said. And God's message is for every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. It's, it's not for a few. It's for everyone. He says, we didn't yield even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. You know, it doesn't matter what they say. It's what does God say? What does God say? This is the assault that the Galatians were up against. Paul is letting them know, listen, this, this, this opposition to the gospel, it's just going to come and it's going to keep on coming. It'll come from inside the church. It'll come from outside the church because it's, it's not just people that are opposing the gospel. There's more, more than meets the eye. Look a little further here at verse 11. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to the face. Now, we know who Cephas is, right? That's Peter. Peter was to be opposed, so I withstood him to the face. Why? He was doing something that was contrary to the gospel. Listen, it's not about just our proclamation. Our, our core philosophy is preaching the gospel for the glory of God and living the gospel. And our actions tell us whether we're living the gospel or not. Peter was contrasting the gospel with his actions in this one instant. And so he was to be condemned in that instant. Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Who was who the, these people? It was even Barnabas, Paul's teammate. Listen, that means that, that I can step out of line with the gospel. Doesn't that mean that? Am I better than Cephas? Are you better than Cephas? Am I better than Barnabas? Could Paul himself not even been out of step with the gospel? Of course he could. This is, we're frail. We, we falter. The book of Galatians wants to help us. Listen, the gospel is what sets you free. If you go back to something else, if you head in another direction, you're going to something that will never satisfy you. It's something that will never perfect you. It will never sanctify you. It will never make you more like Jesus. You might look better to people. People might like you better. People might think you're hipper, slicker, more intellectual. It's not going to make you more in line with Christ. The gospel does that. God does that through the gospel. Look a little further, please. Chapter 3. We read this as our responsive reading. Verses 1 through 6. The Bible says this. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? They know the answer to this. He wasn't asking them a question they didn't know the answer to. It was through the hearing of faith, hearing with faith. 
not through the works of the law. So he goes on. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted, it was counted to him as righteousness. What is he? He's talking about the gospel here. He's saying that the gospel saves and the gospel sanctifies. He doesn't say it here, but the gospel, if you want to just complete the circuit, glorifies. The gospel saves, sanctifies, and glorifies. Who... Who makes the gospel work? Well, of course, it must be me. Nope. You don't even get that credit. It's all God. From beginning to end. From predestining us, to calling us, to justifying us, to sanctifying us, to glorifying us, from beginning to end, it's a work of God. This is the gospel. To deny it is to deny God himself. Looking a little further, look at chapter 4. He brings this to the table again. Chapter 4 and verse 9. We're only touching some, some sections. Obviously, the, the whole thing is about this. The, the whole document, the whole letter to the, to the Galatians is a firm defense of the gospel for its proclamation and its employment in life. Here in Galatians 4, beginning in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Wow, <laughs> that is strong. Why so strong? Listen, friends. The gospel doesn't stop its work. If we go back and try to perfect ourselves by some other way other than God, we're showing that we think we are the ones who saved us. That is not salvation. That's not the gospel. That's something else. It's a different gospel. A gospel which he'll tell us should be condemned. Look at chapter 4 and verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. He uses that analogy there. We, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. We're children not of the law, but we're children of the gospel. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Listen carefully. And, and again, how strong he is in his communication. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, that just seems so redundant, doesn't it? <laughs> For freedom. I, I, was, I was actually hanging out with a chaplain friend of mine in Atlanta. And I was at his house or in his car or something. I don't know, he had to play this song. And it was like this person was saying, it's for freedom that we've been set free. And I was like, that's weird. And, and I said, I knew, because I knew where it came from. I knew that it came from Galatians 5. I, I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not ignorant of it. But, but the way that they phrased it, I was like, well, that's weird. Well, it was actually quoting scripture. And so the weirdness was on me that I didn't recognize, you know, just because God sets us free doesn't mean that we operate in that freedom. Just because that freedom is available doesn't mean that we've employed that freedom. Sometimes we can just live in 
bondage, even though God has set us free. And he's going to tell us the problem with that. And he says so in very strong words. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, the law, Christ will be no advantage to you. Friends, the law doesn't save us. The law doesn't make us pleasing to God. The law doesn't make us like God. The law doesn't do anything but show us our sin. Jesus sets us free. The Spirit makes us like Christ. Jesus' work has made us pleasing to God. It's all his work. He says, if you, if you, if you distort this, if you distort this, Jesus doesn't profit you. Because you think you profit you. Remember this, friends. Remember the statement that, that God made through Isaiah in Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, and I will not share my glory with another. That's a paraphrase. There's more to the verse than that. But that's the idea. I will not share my glory with another. If you think that you are the proponent that makes you saved, you're trying to steal my glory away from me when I'm the one who rescued you. Paul is saying the same thing. Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obliged, obligated, to keep the whole law. If that would even work, it wouldn't, by the way. If you could, and you can't, if you could keep every law perfectly, flawlessly, every day for the rest of your life, know this, you're already condemned. You were born in sin. You were born in sin. Realize that when you were born, you had the sin nature transferred to you, and in Adam you already died. So you could live a perfect life, and you're still condemned. No, you can't. You haven't. You know it. We all know it. We all know how we fail. We we're, we're readily would admit that. But he's telling us, if you want this part of the law, you've got to keep every part of the law. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. In other words, grace has come among you. The grace gospel has been preached to you, and you've chosen something else. You're away from grace. You have no part in Christ if you think that you are what saves you. Only Christ can save so you're either here, the gospel of grace through Christ, or you're here some other way. Might include Jesus, might include Jesus' work, might include the Bible, might include religion, might include churchianity, all that stuff. But if you're not there, he's talking to you. This is as serious as serious can be. A little further, please. Verse 10, Galatians 5.10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. That's good. This, this, is, this is the positive news here. I know that you will not be fully distorted from this. It's a temporary problem we're having. He says, I know, I have confidence in the Lord that you will not, 
uh, you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I'm going to leave that one for another day. But just know that circumcision involves lobbing things off. He's saying I want them to get the whole job done. Bad news. I wish they would be completely out of the way. Why? Because they're just distorting the gospel. And there's nothing more worthy of defending than the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the message about a God who became flesh, tabernacled among you, fulfilled perfectly the law of God, the will of God, lived perfectly and became sin for us, even though we knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. This is the gospel message, friends. Without Christ, we're still in our sins. Without the death, burial, and resurrection, we're still in our sins. And he says, I, I'm, this is serious enough that I just wish they would be gone from the face of the earth. But he has confidence that they will not allow that teaching to ultimately distort their belief. Chapter 6 now. Chapter 6, verses 11 through 15. So now we've, every chapter we've seen that he's defending the gospel. You see it? And the opposition that's coming? Well, the opposition that came in the first century is, is different maybe in form, but not a lot different in its content than the 21st century. There's just another Another attempt at it. Chapter 6 and verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We could go on. Here's why I wanted to go through each chapter. The content is consistent throughout the book of Galatians. And that's this. Here's the content. We must stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ in our proclamation and in our operation, the way that we live. There is opposition to the gospel message. There, there has been and there will continue to be until we're in glory or until Jesus is ruling visibly and finally in all of his creation. So, with that being said, I want for us in the few moments we have left together to look at, very briefly, as briefly as I can, four, four oppositions to the gospel. Four oppositions to the gospel. The first opposition is this, Jesus' nature. Now this is not from the book of Galatians, this is just an, an opposition that has come through the years. Jesus' nature is the first opposition of the gospel. This is vitally important. We cannot, we cannot be saved without a Jesus who is both God and man. So first of all, Jesus is God. Without a conviction of the Bible as authoritative, 
You're not going to convince someone that Jesus is God. Unless they first understand that the Bible is authoritative, they're not going to believe you that Jesus is God. So we're not talking about trying to convince someone who was a naysayer against the Bible. The problem comes when someone says that they subscribe to the Bible as authoritative and still yet hold to a, a less than full view of Jesus' divinity. There are many groups that will give a, God, a nod to Jesus' death, burial, burial, and resurrection, and yet they do not believe that Jesus himself is fully God, that he is co-equal and co-existent with the Father, that he is God in every way. But the Bible declares this very clearly. In John chapter 1, the Bible says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, everyone knows Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. What did he do? Created the heavens and the earth. And here in John chapter 1, Jesus is credited with that. Uh, if that's not enough, Colossians, 1, uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 makes this very brief statement. For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, if that doesn't just end the argument, every ounce of deity dwells in the body of Jesus. Jesus is fully God. Why is this so important? Well, first of all, I guess why it's important is the Bible claims him to be God, and to deny it is to deny the Bible. That's the first state, uh, starting point, but there's more. Jesus' divine nature is the very reason that we know that he lived without the stain of sin. Jesus' divine nature is the reason that we are confident, we know that he lived without the stain of sin. He did not inherit a sinful nature. You'll remember the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 7, 14, where the Bible says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name what? Now, Matthew interpreted that for us, remember? God with us. The Bible is clear. You'll remember the words of the angel to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, excuse me, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Listen, as God, Jesus was without the stain of sin, and thus his spotless sacrifice was sufficient for our sin. As God... Jesus was without the stain of sin, and therefore his sacrifice was sufficient to bear the weight of our sin. But Jesus is also human. Now, there aren't many people that have denied Jesus' humanity throughout the ages because they can see it in the historical record. So there aren't many, but there are some. Even in, in the days of First and Second and Third John, you see the, this group of the forerunners to what became Gnosticism. They denied that Jesus came in the flesh because their philosophy is that flesh is evil. And so if Jesus is flesh, well, how could he bear our sin? Well, the Bible just comes and cuts that thing right out from under us and clears it up. In 2 John 7, John writes this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the what? flesh. <laughs> 
such a one as the deceiver and the Antichrist. Well, it's just kind of straightforward. You also remember from, from the historical record that Jesus was thirsty, that Jesus was hungry, that Jesus was tired, that Jesus cried out in agony on the cross. Remember what he said? Well, he said seven things. But you'll remember one particular. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You remember that? That was cried out in his utter humanity. Just like as he was in the Garden of Eden, uh, Garden of Gethsemane, sorry, and he cried out, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This was cried out in his utter humanity. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's, that's called being a human, right? The Bible, the biblical record is, is very clear. We don't have to wonder whether Jesus was human. The importance of the humanity of Jesus can be summed up in this statement by George Guthrie. Since death was the prescription for victory, and I added over sin, the only way the son could accomplish the needed task was to die, and the only way to die was to become human. God doesn't die. <laughs> He's eternal. So while Jesus is fully God and fully man, deity never died. The humanity of Jesus died, but God doesn't die. So he had to become man in order in order to die in our place. Additionally, as a human, Jesus fully fulfilled the mandates of the law. Now that's not, that, you can't forget that. Listen, if you forget that, you're missing a very important element of the gospel. The term justification, now you've heard it, and I hope you understand it because I try to explain it almost every week. Justification is twofold, okay? First of all, it's the removal of our sin. That's mercy. God removes our sin. Okay? That's the first part of justification. The second part of justification is an addition. That's called grace. God's giving us something we don't deserve. God grants to us righteousness. That's the second part of justification. What righteousness did he grant us? The righteousness of Jesus. How did, that, how did he accrue that? By being God for all of eternity? No. <laughs> By fulfilling the law. Day in and day out for those 30-some years that he lived. He lived in perfect fulfillment of the law. And when God grants Jesus' righteousness to me, he's talking about all those things that Jesus did. He fully obeyed the law. And so when I come to know Jesus as my Savior, all of my sin is removed, and Jesus' righteousness is added to my record, so I stand before God not in a righteousness of my own that I have attained by the law, but a righteousness that comes from God by faith. Whose righteousness? The righteousness of Christ. That comes because Jesus is human. Okay? That's important. There are attacks against Jesus' nature. And a distortion, a distortion of either the deity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus is to deny the gospel. A denial of the gospel or a distortion of the gospel is a distortion of the only news that can save us from the penalty and power of sin. That's serious, friends, which is why this text of Scripture, Galatians, is so important to us as a defense of the doctrine, the doctrine of the gospel. Here's a second opposition. 
And this is popular today. Our nature. Our nature. Our society has really lost sight of this. It's a very sad plight that we have found ourselves in. We have placed feelings, emotions, experiences above any objective truth. We have experienced emotions and experiences above any objective truth. We're not surprised that this has happened because when someone deviates from the, from the, the scriptures as authoritative, you've got to find somewhere that you place some merit. And we're not surprised that it is found within man. It's really the natural outworking of our society's worldview that they have come to this place that we ourselves are God. You realize that that's what has happened, don't you? Don't tell me what to think. Your truth is fine for you. My truth is fine for me. They actually don't even believe that first part, by the way. <laughs> they don't like the truth that we ascribe to. But they'll say it because they want to give some credence to their own view. It's a real problem. One of the basic tenets of the Bible's teaching about man, this is called anthropology for those of you that like to study theology, is that man, men, we, are, ready? <gasps> Don't say this word in public. Sinners. We're sinners. Now, we could talk about total depravity. Total depravity does not state that every man is as wicked as they could possibly be. There are sinners that have high moral character and sinners that have low moral character. The concept of total depravity is that every part of our nature is touched by sin. Every part of our being is impacted by sin. Take a look, please, with me at a couple of passages of Scripture about this, our nature. Take a look at Romans chapter 3. I want you to turn to three different verses of Scripture as we try to recognize this objection to the gospel. The first one is about Jesus' nature. Well, he's God and, and he's human. The second objection or opposition is our nature. Who, what are we? The Bible makes it very clear that we're sinners. Our society does not want to view it that way. They want to view it differently. Your feelings matter more than some archaic, dusty book. Isn't that what, what it comes down to? And in reality, that's saying, I, I will not have that standard stand above me. It will not judge me. It will not tell me right from wrong. That's what it says. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and following, What then? Are we, are, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are what? Under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Look down at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of of God. Look at chapter 5 and verse 12. Chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to what? All men. Why? Because what? All have 
sinned, all sinned. Well, if man is not inherently sinful, then we don't need the salvation that God offers. Isn't that true? If I'm not inherently sinful, I don't need what God is offering me in the gospel. Well, that's not a good place to be. Take a look, please, with with me at another passage, Psalm 2. You know, the objections that we face today, really, there's no difference than there ever has been. Think back in the days of the Garden of Eden. Think of Adam and Eve. And they're, they're, they're every day walking with God in the cool of the day. And then the, the serpent comes along and he distorts the truth. And, and Eve believed him. And Adam, well, I don't know what the guy was thinking. He, he didn't do the right thing, right? He just wanted to please his wife instead of please, pleasing God. There's a lot that goes there that we, we really don't have time to get into all all the nitty-gritty of that problem. But that's the start of this, God, you don't really know what you're talking about. And then, scene two, you go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, and you've got Cain and Abel. It's the same thing. Abel brings a sacrifice in accordance with what he saw God communicate. Cain brings one of his own accord. God, won't you be happy with this? No. Well, you should be. So he was mad, and he killed his brother. You know all the thing, how it goes. You should have been pleased. I worked hard for that. You should have been really happy with me. But no, no. Why, what was the problem? Because, God, you don't know what you're talking about. I have a better way. Well, so, Psalm 2, several centuries later. Look what it says, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. Now that term has the idea of taking their stand. Set themselves. They're setting themselves against God and against his rule. The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, you've got poetic expression here. I don't think that we take God as thinking lightly of men's perilous plight. You're running that too far when you take the poetic expression and turn it to that. The concept is this. I'm going to fight against you! And God's like, all right, think that's going to work? which is why we have verses 5 and 6, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, I'm not really afraid. So in, in the past, I've tried to, um, to, to give us the analogy of this ant. There's an ant, and he's like looking up at you saying, I'm going to get you! And it's like, yeah, oh, man, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do about that. But it's a, it's a little too, little too vile to, to use that analogy. So I figured, uh, I was thinking as I was meditating on this, this tells you a little bit about my weirdness of my mind, I was thinking about the movie The Avengers. Yes, maybe you've seen it and maybe you haven't. Probably by the, the lack of response, you probably haven't seen it. But there's a scene in The Avengers where Loki, one of, uh, one of the little demigods, is, is there and, and 
There's the Hulk. Now, you guys have heard of the Incredible Hulk. He's big and he's green and he's mean and all that stuff. And Loki says, like, he, he and Hulk are about to, to tussle. They're about to tussle. And, and Loki says, enough! You are, all of you are beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature. And, and I will not be bullied by. And suddenly he's not talking anymore. Because the Hulk picked him up by his ankle. And he started slamming him back and forth and back and forth. And one, my, my favorite part, and again, this tells you a little bit about my nature. It's not very good. He looks down at him, kind of see, like, are you still all right? Nope. And he, he smashed him some more. And then you get to, to that. And now you can't hear it because you're not watching the movie. But, but you hear this. As the Hulk walks away, this is my favorite line. He says, puny God. I'm thinking, this kind of, kind of gives us a little glimpse of what it means when man says to God, we will not have you rule over us. We will burst your bonds from us. We will be free and live our own lives. And God says, I, I already set my king on this holy hill. What are, you, what are you thinking? And yet, friends, every day, this is where people are. They sit in judgment of God. They sit in judgment as if they have rule over him. And the sad and wonderful reality is that is not the way it is. Men do not rule over God. Men do not judge God. They have no, their judgment is not authoritative. God in the person of Jesus is the judge. We as humanity have gotten a little too big for our britches. And we must understand that God knows our nature better than we do. This means that he knows how to address our frailties and failures far better than we do. And I'll tell you, friends, the way he addresses our failures and our frailties is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a denial of our frail, weak, sinful nature distorts the gospel message. You think Satan is not behind this? You think Satan is not behind this? Men have enough problems of their own, and Satan just throws fuel on the fire to distort the gospel. Objection number one, Jesus' nature. Objection number two, our nature. Objection number three, and we're only going to be able to touch on it for a moment. The gospel is almost enough. The gospel is almost enough. There are plenty of religious groups who speak well of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They give a nod to the gospel. However, if you, if I, if we add anything to the gospel, we distort the gospel and we gut it of its power. The Bible says in John 3.16, we all know it, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And Paul drives this point home several times in the book of Galatians. I wanted to share a couple of them with you. Galatians 2. We're almost done. Fear not. You will eat lunch today. 
Galatians 2 and verse 16, a very, I, I trust, a familiar passage to you. Paul says in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. He thought that they were dull of hearing, so he said it three times. Didn't he? He just said it three times. In case they didn't get it in verse 16, look down at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He just, can you say it any more plainly? You can't. He just comes right with it. Chapter 3 and verse 21, please. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Listen carefully. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But there is no law that can give life, only the gospel. Look at chapter 3 as well in verses 11 through 13. So chapter 3, Galatians 3, verses 11 through 13. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ, what? Redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged, who is hanged on a tree. A distortion of our view of the sufficiency of the gospel results in a distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Jesus only gets you like this close, it's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus from beginning to end. Not my doing, not your doing, not the obtaining, not the keeping, and not the completing. The gospel is about Jesus and his work, gaining us, keeping us, and completing us. That's the gospel. A gospel that says it's almost there, it's almost enough, is not the gospel. Finally, and very briefly, Opposition 4, because this is going to be really what we talk about throughout our study of the book of Galatians. The gospel, this is the opposition number 4, the gospel is only about our eternal condition before God. The gospel is only about our eternal condition before God. This is a message that is typically preached in many gospel churches and that the gospel gets us to heaven. And then they say, well, the gospel now is for us to communicate to other people so they can get to heaven. That is an inferior view of the gospel. That view of the gospel will impact your day-to-day life in a horribly terrible way. As we go through the book of Galatians, we're going to understand how the book of Galatians helps us to understand that the gospel is not only that which secures my eternal possession of heaven, and relationship with God, but also that the gospel is what sustains me and matures me through every single day. If the gospel is not impactful upon our daily life, we will be frustrated by an unworthy substitute for the gospel. It can manifest itself in many ways. There are two possibilities, legalism and antinomianism, two opposite ways, but both result 
of a faulty view of the gospel. Okay? As we study through Galatians, Paul's presentation of the gospel and his defense of the gospel will fight against both legalism, which is you can define as viewing the law, God's commandments or man's commandments, as a means by which we become holy or pleasing to God. When legalism rules us, we have one of two attitudes. I owe God this, so I must do it. There's one problem of legalism. The second one is, I'm doing this, now God owes me. That's the second problem with legalism. Antinomianism, on the other part of anti, anti, against, namas, law, against the law. We're not those that are against the law. The law is what? Good, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, if it be used lawfully, lawfully, properly. Viewing the law as abolished and unimportant. Now remember, I want you to know this, the law is anywhere that God says, do this or do that. Anywhere that God says, don't do this and don't do that. Don't, don't narrow it down to 619 commandments of Moses. The law is anytime you hear anything that's telling you you need to do something. Like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. As also is, walk in the Spirit. Did you know that that's a law? That's law. Because God told you to do something. Now, it's a grace principle. Why do we say that it's a grace principle? Because when we're saying walk in the Spirit, we're saying, I need to yield myself to God so His Spirit can do the work in me. That's grace. That's gospel. But when God says, walk in the Spirit, that's law. And so we see it all over the pages of Scripture. So the law is not unimportant. The law is fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Did you know that? Every one of us should memorize this verse. Look at it. There it is. It's in white with a gray, beautiful background. Romans 8.4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled... Where? In us. us. How? Because we're walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So who's actually doing that work of fulfilling the law in us? God is. God is. That's the gospel. The reality of the gospel is that the Spirit can and will perform the obligations of the law in your life. If you don't see the gospel as relevant to your daily life, you will be unable to fulfill the demands of the Scriptures in a spiritual way, truly. We must understand the gospel. We must understand what it teaches about Jesus' nature, about our nature, about its complete sufficiency for our eternal life, and about its complete sufficiency as a means of guiding our daily walk. This is the gospel, and this is what Paul is defending here. As we dive in deep to the book of Galatians, this is the theme. We need to understand, proclaim, And by God's grace, live out the gospel daily. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your gospel, for your spirit, for Jesus and what he's done. Help us, Father, that we would, by your grace, walk in the spirit, not fulfilling the lusts of our flesh, that people would see Jesus in us, that the life of Jesus would be seen, that the words of Jesus would be heard, that the fruit of the Spirit would be evidenced 
not for our glory, not for the glory of a church, but for the glory of your church, for the glory of your son, for the benefit of those who will come to know Jesus as their Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.